Holy Father, we are yours. We come to this place this morning together as your children to shout out to you once again that we are yours. In all of the ways that we have forgotten about you, that we have walked away from you, we ask your forgiveness. And we declare once again that we are yours. We know that you are our rock, our fortress, and our deliverer, the one with all authority over evil. We pray, Lord, that you would call us out upon those waters. Help us to exercise the faith that you have given to each one of us. That we might trust you completely, Lord, to guide us as we go. We ask these things in your holy name. Amen. Let's sing that chorus once more.
morning scripture reading is from Luke chapter 4 verses 31 to 34. Please stand if you're able for the reading of the gospel. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit, He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What words these are! What authority and power he gives! Orders to impure spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Messiah. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of of Judea. This is the word of the Lord. 
Share a word of greeting with others here in worship today. So a couple things I want to mention to you um, before I get into the sermon. First of all, Happy Lunar New Year to a number of you and who celebrate that, and that's important to you, and it's exciting. And uh, here's a big party coming up maybe in the next week or so, and uh, it's a, that's a, it's a big event around a lot of the world. So we uh, hope you have a, a great celebration with that. Um, this is also uh, a time uh, in the church calendar when we are entering the season of Lent, and Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, which is the beginning of the season of Lent that goes for the next 40 days, excluding Sundays. And we are hosting a service here at 6.30. Maybe Ash Wednesday is not a part of your tradition or things that you have your experiences. But um, if you're up for something a little bit different, we'd love to have you come to this service. Uh, the service has a fair amount of silence and some time for meditation. Uh, it's about kind of getting us into uh, thinking about the passion, the suffering of Jesus. So it's a very contemplative type service. And uh, the ashes and are just one sort of tactile way of, of engaging in uh, what we're talking about. So we'll be here at 6.30 for about an hour. All the children's ministries are meeting on regular schedule, but we'll be meeting in here Wednesday night, 6.30, and we'd love to have you uh, join us for this service. Do you ever have the experience when you, when you read a book that you like it, but there are things about it that you're not sure you like? You know, the things about if you're really engaging in a book and people, the author's talking about things that, you know, you, you think, yeah, it resonates with me, I like that, but, you know, that, that really makes me uncomfortable. I have that experience a lot because there's, you know, there's, there's no author you agree everything with them. But... Actually, I had that experience with uh, actually a book that has really had a great impact on my life. And it was written 1980, so it's been out a little while. And I read it as came, I came out of seminary. It's Scott Peck's book, The Road Less Traveled. And some of you may have read that book, but it's a powerful treatise about life and growth and love and uh, our journey. And it's just very insightful. What I didn't really like about the book was the very first sentence. The very first sentence of the book sort of sent me reeling a little bit. It's not that I disagreed with him. I just didn't like it. You know that feeling? This, the book begins with a sentence. It's just three words. Powerful words. He starts out by saying, life is difficult. Life is difficult. And when I read that, I agreed with him. Life is difficult. 
What I didn't like is I don't want life to be difficult. I want life to be easy. I want life to be simple. I want life to be uncomplicated. But the reality is life is difficult. And when we begin to think about life being difficult, one of the questions that often comes to our mind is addressed to God. When we experience difficulties in life, our follow-up question is, God, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to make life less difficult? How are you going to address this difficulty? How are you going to get me out of this problem? How are you going to... Allow my life to be such that maybe it doesn't have to be difficult. God, what are you going to do? Every human being is wrestling with that, with that question and that, that, that truth that life is difficult. And God, what are you going to do about it? And I think this passage we've read from the fourth chapter of Luke's gospel speaks into those concerns. Jesus has just come from Nazareth, didn't end so well. He teaches in the synagogue there, says some harsh things, hard things for them to hear. They drag him out of town and they're ready to throw him off a cliff. But he gets away from them. And so he's traveling around the other regions there in Galilee and he's doing miracles and teaching and people are amazed. And he comes to this town of Capernaum, which is one of the larger communities in that part of Israel. And he comes to the synagogue because that's what itinerant preachers do. They go to the synagogue. The synagogue is the gathering place for Jewish people to learn and to be taught. And if you're an itinerant preacher, you can come and you can speak. And so Jesus comes and he speaks in the synagogue. But what we find, Luke tells us, is there's something different about the way Jesus speaks. Something about the way he teaches grabs the attention of the people. And Luke says that they say of Jesus, they spoke with authority. He spoke with a sense of power. He knows what he's talking about. It's not just that he knows the truth and he can explain it, but there is some inner sense about Jesus that this is genuine and this is real and we ought to be paying attention to this. I I love the way, I think it's the message, translates that verse. It says, they were surprised and impressed. His teaching was so forthright, so confident, so authoritative, not the quibbling and quoting they were used to. Here is Jesus saying to them, this is what the kingdom of God is about. This is who God is. This is what he wants you to be. And and there is a sense of authority in Jesus' teaching. There is a power to his teaching that connects with these people who are seeking and waiting for the Messiah to come and waiting for God to do something significant in their lives. And Jesus comes to teach and to tell them, I've come to show you that. And they think it's awesome. And in the middle of that teaching, a guy stands up who Luke says is demon-possessed, and he starts yelling at Jesus. Jesus, why are you troubling us? What are you doing here? Leave us alone. One translation says, it's, why is it any of your business what we're doing here? Let us be. And Jesus rebukes the demon 
and casts the demon out of the man and changes his life. And I'm reading that and I'm thinking, there is something here underlying this that as Jesus is in the synagogue, he's not just speaking words of authority. We, they now see them in action. Jesus doesn't just speak authoritatively. He has authority. He has authority over evil. Here is Jesus face to face with evil. And he has authority over it. He rebukes the demon. And the demon has re- no recourse but to leave. And the demon said, the question is, have you come here to destroy us? The simple answer is, yes, I have. I mean, that, that's really it. It's, it's an interesting question that he would ask. And it's just sort of one of those questions that's this big softball that Jesus can knock out of the park. Yes, it's not that complicated. I've come to destroy you. The book in 1 John 3, 8, John says that the Son of Man came to destroy the works of the devil. And Jesus has come to destroy evil. And though the demon says, what business is it of yours to bother us, leave us alone, the reality is Jesus comes because God will not leave evil alone. And Jesus has authority over evil. Sometimes it's hard for us to grasp that in this world that we live in where there's so much evil. So much evil in this world. We see it every single day. And in the midst of all this evil, there is a doubt in the back of our minds. Is God really in authority? Does Jesus really have authority? Because it doesn't look like it. It looks like evil is getting away with everything. But Jesus comes to remind us and to tell us and to show us that despite what it looks like, all authority, including the authority over evil, is in his hands. And when we question whether God cares about evil in the world, whether it makes any difference to God or not, because in our minds, in our way of thinking, God's not really doing enough We see the story of Jesus and we're reminded God has authority over evil. God is greater than evil. He's at work even when we don't see it. It's the foundation of our faith. If evil is greater than Jesus, what are we doing here? What's the point? It's just hard when we can't see it. When Jesus finishes at the synagogue, he goes to the home of his disciple, Peter. They find that Peter's mother-in-law is very ill with a fever. I get the feeling that she may even be on the brink of death. And the people say, would you come and heal her, Jesus? And he says, sure. And he goes in, and I love the way Luke describes this. He stands over her, and he says, he rebuked the fever. That seems like an odd thing to say. You know, to heal the fever, to get rid of the fever, but to rebuke the fever seems like an odd thing. But I think it's one of the threads that ties these whole sections together. Because first of all, Jesus rebukes the demon in the temple or in the synagogue. And now he rebukes the fever in Peter's mother-in-law. And she's healed. 
And I think it is telling us that Jesus not only has authority over evil in general, but he has authority over the consequences of evil in the specific. We all live with the consequences of evil. Peter's mother-in-law is ill because of the consequences of evil. And I don't mean by that that she somehow sinned and so she got sick because she sinned. There are people who believe that. There are people who teach that. That if you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, then if you're sick, that's because you've done something wrong and you're being punished for that. I think we get sick because we live in a fallen world. And there's disease. And and there are problems and there are struggles. And in this fallen world, we have to deal with all of this stuff. But I'm convinced that Jesus is greater than all of the stuff that we deal with in this world. In some ways, this is a more difficult one for us because it's connected to us so much more than, I mean, evil in general bothers us and it grabs at our heartstrings, but evil, the consequences of evil in the specific are where we live. I mean, because we live in this fallen world, because evil has consequences and we have to live with them, people we love get cancer and have heart failure and go through accidents And they deal with stuff that, quite frankly, we don't want them to deal with. And in those moments, we're asking God, are you greater than this? It's not just, it's not just illness. It's, it's all of life. All of the things of life that we cannot control. What's that next stage of life going to be? Am I going to get into the college I want to get into? Am I going to get into the grad school I want to get into? Am I going to get the job that I want to get? Am I going to have the finances I want? What about that relationship? All of these things in our lives that are bigger than us, and they are bigger than us. I mean, let's just be honest, because if they weren't bigger than us, we'd just handle them and move on. There's things about these issues that are out of our control. We can't control other people. We can't control the decisions that other people make. We can't control so much of life. And we feel helpless. And sometimes hopeless. And it's into those situations that we need to see Jesus who is greater and the stuff we deal with. Of course, the problem is we want Jesus to get rid of the stuff. We want Jesus to, to make life no longer difficult. And sometimes he does, but often he doesn't. And the foundation of our faith is when life isn't how we want it to be, when we have to wait for answers, when it feels like our prayers are hitting the ceiling, And they're just continually dead ends. And everything we try seems to fall short. In the midst of all of that, can we still believe that Jesus is greater than all the consequences of evil that we live with? All the consequences of our fallen, broken world that we have to deal with. Can we believe that Jesus is still greater? That's the call on us.
as the day comes to an end, people start, they find out where Jesus is and they start bringing people to him. And he is healing them. And in the course of the, working with these people, more and more people who have demons in them arrive and, and they start shouting at Jesus. And it's interesting, just like the first one did, though it seems to be more of the case here, they start saying, we know who you are. You're the Messiah, the Son of God. You're Jesus. We know who you are. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes the demons and tells them to, in essence, shut up. I have to admit, I've always wondered about that. I mean, wouldn't it make more public relations sense to let them tell people who you are? Isn't that the whole point? You're coming to say to people, look, I am the Son of God. I'm the Messiah. I want you to know that. And here are some people who are going to tell you that. You know, it's one, and, and these are not even people that like me. These are my enemies, and they're telling you who I am. They're proclaiming my greatness. It sort of reminds me of earlier in chapter 4, Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, and the last temptation, Satan takes him up to the top of the temple, way up high, and he says to him, why don't you jump off and your angels will rescue you? And when that happens, everyone is going to be so amazed, you will never lack for followers. All you got to do is stand up there, the crowd will draw, and you jump, and the angels save you, and people will be in awe. It, it will be bigger than Nick Walenda crossing the Niagara, across the Niagara Falls. I mean, this will be huge. And Jesus says, that's not how we're doing things in the kingdom. And I think the same thing is happening here with the demons. First of all, he's saying... Evil doesn't get to tell people who I am. I don't really consider that to be a credible source. They don't get that privilege. And besides, the timing isn't right. And it's all about the timing. It isn't until the last week of Jesus' life that he basically pulls back the veil and says, okay, now let me tell you exactly who I am. And right now, this is the beginning of his ministry. The people can't handle it. It's way too much. They, they don't have a good understanding of what it means for him to be the Messiah. And it's going to mess with them terribly, which is why the demons are shouting it. They're trying to mess with people. They're trying to confuse them. They're trying to force Jesus' hand. They're trying to, to make decisions for the kingdom. And Jesus says, evil doesn't get to make decisions for the kingdom. Because Jesus is greater than evil. And God is not on the run. God doesn't react to evil. God isn't living on the defensive toward evil. He's in control. And yes, because of our free will, evil has a lot of, of leeway in the world. And evil takes advantage of most of it. But there is always Jesus. And Jesus is greater than any power that the evil one and evil has. It's understanding the dynamics of the kingdom and trusting that the way of God is the right way. 
So when you get to the end of the story and the people find Jesus and they come to him and say, look, we want you to stay here with us. Jesus says, no, I can't do that because I came to tell other people too. And, and the point of the kingdom is not that, that I, I just stay with you guys all the time. I have to tell lots of other people. But there is something in their mindset of if we could just kind of corral Jesus right here and he could be our little personal God and he can save us from all of our stuff and he can heal us from all of our things and he can make our lives no longer difficult. And we'll just keep him here. And there's something in our minds that we want to do that too. We want to domesticate Jesus. And he becomes ours that in the sense that we wrap our arms around him instead of letting him wrap his arms around us. And we're trying to contain him. We're trying to make him do what we want him to do. Trying to shape the kingdom into what we want it to be. It's sort of like, I was thinking, it's sort of like Jesus is our our divine errand boy. And then someone said to me, as I was talking about this week, they said, actually, maybe a better analogy is that he's our divine genie. I think that's a better picture. You know, in all, the, in all the, uh, the stories of a genie, you rub the magic lamp and the genie comes out and you're granted wishes. And the genie has more power than the human, but the human controls the genie. And sometimes that's what we're trying to do. God, if you just do things the way I want you to do them, everything will be fine. If, if you could just work this out and do it the way I want you to do it, then everything is good. And it doesn't mean that we don't pray about things. It doesn't mean that we don't tell God what we're thinking and what we desire. But underneath all of that is a belief that the way that Jesus responds is always best because we trust him. And he knows what he's doing. Instead of trying to control Jesus, we surrender to Jesus. Because he is the Lord, Lord of all. And we make good servants. We don't make very good masters. And really the call on us, instead of control, it's surrender and trust. At the heart of all of this is a call to trust that Jesus is indeed in control. That he is greater than evil and all of its consequences and all of the things that, that the way in which evil wants to reshape the kingdom. And all the ways in which we subtly and probably subconsciously try to control Jesus. Will we trust him instead? Can we believe that when life isn't going the way we want it to, he's still in control? When our prayers are hitting dead ends, he's still in control. When our life isn't evolving the way we want it to, he's still in control. When that relationship is breaking down, he's still in control. When this person is struggling, he's still in control. When we're facing such great difficulties and pain and struggles, he's still in control. Can we trust him? Can we believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Even if we don't see it like we want to. And of course, to have faith, to trust, it's always active in the scriptures. 
It's never just I believe, but it's I believe and therefore I do. I wonder if one of the tests about our, our willingness, our ability to trust, is that other people examine our lives and they say, that person really trusts Jesus. By the things that they do, by their attitude, by the, the way they live, by the decisions they make, I can tell that person trusts Jesus. And trusting Jesus in the midst of the world filled with evil means that we, we get on board with Jesus about the ways in which he is addressing evil. And instead of just lamenting evil, we are continually asking, Lord, how can I be a person who is involved in bringing an end to this? And bringing relief to people? And being your hands and your feet to people in need? This is the call on God's people. But it will be a difficult, shallow, and hollow response if it isn't rooted in a firm belief and trust that Jesus is who he says he is. You know, I enjoy reading spy novels. One of my favorites is the late Vince Flynn. And um, others like Daniel Silva and Lee Child and, and uh, Robert Ludlum. There, there are lots of these spy novels. And, and they have a lot in common. If you've ever read them, you see this. There's always a hero that uh, is in... Every, every author has their hero that they have that is in all of the books as they go through. And, and the storyline is often similar. The hero's just kind of minding his own business, going about life, and then something in the world erupts, and the hero is called in to do something about it. And in the midst of that, the, the pressure of evil and, is great and terrible, and, there, and all kinds of damage, and, and all kinds of terrible things are happening. And in the middle of all that, the hero is sure he'll never get out of it. He feels helpless and hopeless, and it's such a great struggle. It's never going to get better. And, and if the author is good, you become absorbed in the story. I know I do. I sometimes get so absorbed in the story, I can just feel my emotions on edge. I'm angry with them, and I'm excited with them, and I'm frustrated with them. And, you know, and I'm wanting to, I mean, I just get so into it that I read these at night sometimes, and I have to put it aside and do something else, or I can't go to sleep, because I'm so engaged in the story. And it's in those moments that I have to step back and remember that... The end of the book hasn't come yet. And I'm pretty sure I know it's going to end in the hero solving the problem. The question is how the author is going to walk us to get to that solution. But I'm pretty sure the hero is going to solve the problem. And there is something of the gospel in that. Because we live between the now and the not yet. We live in a world that is fallen and broken. And a world in which evil is, confronts us continually. And a world in which, because of that, we are not perfect. And we hurt each other. And we do things to contribute to the problems in the world. And other people contribute to us and our problems in the world. And, and we want to give, feel hopeless and helpless about it. And it's in those moments that we have to remember the end of the story. 
who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And to trust and believe even yet. So this morning, as you think about what might be in your life, a situation for you, maybe it's a situation for the bigger world, that you're wondering, is God really a part of that? Is God involved in that? Is God active in this? We're going to take just a moment of silence to ask God to remind us that he is present and he's at work. And he is bigger and greater than anything. Father, as we face the struggles and the difficulties of life in our lives, give us a new vision of the authority, the power of Christ who conquers all things. Give us the ability to trust you. Father, we pray not only for ourselves, but we do pray for this world and for those around us that we care for involved in our lives, and we think of people who are grieving and ask that you would minister your grace to them through Christ. And we pray for those who are struggling with illness and pain and ask that you would minister your healing to each of them. We pray, Father, for the work of your kingdom in the world. And we thank you for the work of Bruce and Donna Hess. And ask that you would continue to bless them as they minister here in this community for OMS, and that you would bless their efforts, and that through them, that they might help people who are wrestling with your call in their lives. We pray, Father, for the situation in the, these African nations, Ethiopia, and Zimbabwe, and South Sudan. Famine, starvation, Millions of people. Because those in control can't come together and find peace. Father, this is exactly the kind of situation that we are praying for the power and the authority of Jesus to work miraculously. Father, this morning we pray for uh, the ushers of our church and this ministry and pray that you would continue to, to bless them and encourage them as they minister to us. And Father, as we think about the churches around us and the work of your kingdom in them, we pray for the Belfast First Baptist Church and for Pastor Franklin. And we pray your anointing upon them and your blessing upon them and may they know your grace in all that they do. Father, thank you. Thank you for your presence here with us today.
Thank you for your grace upon our lives. Help us to continue to see you like we have not seen you before. And fill our hearts with the hope of Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. I'd like to invite the ushers to come as we give back to God through our tithes and offerings. Great night.
receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.